This episode is sponsored by CoreLite. CoreLite delivers powerful network visibility solutions for information security professionals, helping them understand network traffic and defend their organizations more effectively. CoreLite solutions are built on Zeek, the widely used open source network analysis framework that generates actionable, real-time data for thousands of security teams worldwide. Learn more at CoreLite.com. I have people come to me on our teams that will say, here's something we're proposing, this is something we're going to do. And when you really kind of dig in deep in the technology, you know, you, you find things that you wouldn't necessarily find if you didn't have that background. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's episode, I speak with new CISO David Rule about the tools he leveraged to make the shift from engineering to executive management, and the benefits of having a technical background when you take on the CISO role. Being a new CISO means marrying the business and tech. A strong technical team supports this marriage, and trusting that team to take care of the technical aspects lets you focus on the business of security. Good afternoon, Dave. If you would, please introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Dave Rule, and I am the Senior Vice President of Global Infrastructure and Chief Information Security Officer for a private equity firm based in Boston with offices located in pretty much all corners of the world. Been in this role for about six years, and prior to that, did a three-year stint in the software industry, holding senior management roles. And prior to that, spent the balance of my career in the asset management space in an infrastructure engineering and support capacity. I started out as a, as a help desk technician and went into systems engineering and eventually getting into management. And about six years ago, I started to consciously pivot my career away from being a, a technical manager and more towards becoming a business leader focused on security. That's one of the things I picked up on when we first met and had a chat. You are the CISO, but you also wear multiple hats. I think it would be important for the listener, for those in a similar spot, they heard your, your kind of your path. For those that have an officer title, but aren't the CISO and there is not a CISO, how did that ha- kind of happen in your case, right? Because you didn't necessarily start with an emphasis on security. I was at a, an inflection point and, and I kind of looked back at my career and I said, to myself, I've been, you know, doing the infrastructure thing for for quite a long while, and you know, what do I really want to get out of the rest of my career, and and what will offer me really the highest level of engagement? So I felt like, you know, security and information protection protection was really the new challenge for me, and and, and it was going to be the right move. I also saw a need right it, it, where I was working at the time, so that's kind of how it all evolved for me. So it's an opportunity, I think, that many, I hope, that listen or some that listen. You know, maybe there's a security team, but there's not a, a great program around it. And so you're arguably in charge of IT. What do you say to those that would say, well, that's a more prestigious job. And typically that position is the boss of the CISO. So you're already that. So why would you try to be that? You're already that guy's boss. Why would you try to be both? I mean, what, what's the retort for that? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it depends on, on the personal situation, right? So either way, I was going to report to the same person, and, and I report currently to the CTO. So that really wasn't going to change from that perspective. 
But again, it really came down to, and, and of course, infrastructure changes, right? The cloud evolves and, and things like that. So there's there's plenty of opportunity for to remain interested in that kind of stuff. But I really felt like security was something that you know I hadn't really been a, been an SME in, and I really wanted to dig in deep. And I thought that the best way for me to add as much value as I can for my company was really to, to kind of move into that role. So. Luckily for me, I also had some very, very capable team members working for me that that kind of are able to handle the day-to-day infrastructure stuff. So I'm really able to spend the majority of my time focusing on our, our security program. You, you mentioned shift to the cloud and, and some other things. And I, and I also have a feeling that you, know, you adding security to, to what you're responsible for and what you can articulate, uh, maybe lesser degree as a technician, but maybe more so as a leader. It seems like you were doing kind of a market analysis of skill and capability of those in leadership. What advice would you have to somebody who's not a CISO or maybe somebody who works in ops, IT ops, infrastructure, whatever, and they're thinking about moving into security as a manager? What's sort of step zero there? It's a hard thing to do because if you're if you're going into something that you really don't have a lot of experience on and now you're going to be in a position where you know you have to make decisions and you're going to be accountable for for people's work in that space, and, and and you don't really understand it. That that's a kind of a hard thing to do. For me, I thought it made sense for me to get that management experience and kind of be in charge of a group of people that were doing work that I was familiar with. And I th- I thought at the time the technology piece was a lot easier for me because I'd already been doing it, and I could really focus the time on you know being a good manager and being a good mentor and spending less time actually trying to do the work that they're working on. I mean, we've all had non-technical managers and that presents, you know, benefits and challenges for for working for folks like that. And I really just thought it would make sense for me to, again, get that experience with something that I knew versus something I didn't. Let's go back to that. What's the biggest challenge for those who have a non-technical boss? You have to be able to explain, you know, complicated concepts to someone that doesn't understand it, right? So you've got to really make sure that you're a good communicator, I think, and, and that doesn't come natural for everybody, right? In, in including myself earlier in my career. So I think, you know, to be able to explain what not only one, the challenge that you're trying to overcome and how you're going to do it, but what's the impact and what are some of the downstream consequences of, of, of doing things? And to be able to get that through to somebody that, you know, doesn't have that that contextual background, that's that's not always an easy thing to do. We're seeing more and more CISOs that are non-technical and they come from other areas of the, of business, different backgrounds, different experiences, which I think in many cases could be good. Um, I think there's many things that we lack uh, as an industry, skill sets uh, in particular around leadership and communication. I also think that if you don't have, and you said some of this, if you don't know what the hell's going on, uh, it's awfully hard to connect with your team. One of the things that maybe gave me an advantage years ago is I was an engineer. I was an intrusion analyst. I came up through those same ranks. How much time did you spend on trying to dig into security while also trying to be a better leader? Because that was another transition you were doing. So how, how much did you dig into the tech? I mean, a lot. And to your point, you know, you really have to, I mean, look, it's different from everybody. And, and it's funny because now that I'm older and, I, and I've really kind of change what I'm doing. I, you know, I spend all day speaking with other business leaders. So I've, I've become a business leader, right? So I'm a lot less technical than I used to be. But, you know, one of the challenges there is 
or, or I guess benefits to having that background is, you know, if you're going to do something or you're, you're proposing something for your, for your firm and you don't have that technical anchor to kind of fall back on where you can, you know, look at something and say, no, that doesn't make sense. And that, and that's ha- that happens to me still, right? Where I have people come to me on our teams that will say, here's something we're proposing. This is something we're going to do. And when you really kind of dig in deep in the technology, you know, you, you find things that you wouldn't necessarily find if you didn't have that background. So I think that's probably another challenge to consider. I was speaking with a guy earlier today and he's a CISO and they have 2,500 people in the security team. And that's, that's an anomaly. That's a very rare thing, but that's a massive team. Most organizations have a smaller security footprint and many have hybrid uh, positions, meaning your infrastructure ops, but you're also, you might wear a security hat. You might assist in this sort of blended world. And in a case where you're part of a smaller team, you might have to keep your hands closer in the tech, maybe even access. But I'd like to get your opinion on one of my rules that I had, which was if you moved into management, director, uh, manager, et cetera, that you were no longer given rights to the security tools because you needed to focus on being a leader and an influencer and a protector of your team. What is your position on that? I agree 100%. I I personally do not have um, administrative access to a lot of the things I used to have even years ago. But something you said really piqued my interest. You talked about people wearing multiple hats. If you really look at it, right, at the end of the day, it's everybody's responsibility Mm. to have some sort of security responsibility. And And that goes for, you know, protecting yourself from social engineering and things like that. But I don't personally have that overlap. I do have the separation in, in my current um, my current firm, but I agree 100%. There's absolutely no need for me to be, you know, having administrative rights on a on a, a firewall or a router or something like that. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But why? Why doesn't it make any sense from your perspective? Well, because I think that you know, if if something that I would do on a daily basis, you know, 10 years ago, I could do dam- probably more damage now than I. I, I would have done years ago where I, I actually knew what I'm doing. I'm in there on a daily basis. I'm, I'm up to speed. My, you know, my technical skills are rusty. They're still there, right? I can, I can figure things out if I need to, but you know, I think there's risk. I think there's risk to the firm. If you've got someone, you know, manipulating code and, or, or changing command lines and, and, and something that's, you know, a critical device to your, to your organization. I just don't think I prefer to have somebody who's doing it on a daily basis, be managing that. Sure. And I'm sure, honestly, that they'd appreciate that too, frankly. Yeah, I've been told. It's an element of trust for them. They probably have a passion for it and an interest, and there are sort of incentives for them to stay sharp. The incentives for you to stay sharp are on a different set of skills, right? frankly. And so to me, it's an issue of time allocation. It's not that, that you can't have an interest in it or not that you can't understand it, but at some point, that's the challenge of leadership. And I think you've done it a couple of times is you have had to to learn and then learn knowing that you're going to leave the knowledge or leave the hands-on knowledge. So a shift from IT into leadership and then into security details and then security leadership. It's sort of a double move, which is a little bit rare. You have to be comfortable sort of divorcing yourself of the tech in order to be a better leader. Earlier in your career, one of the questions I like to ask is, what advice would you give your younger self because many of us either lacked mentors or had shitty bosses along the way that sort of weren't looking out for you. You mentioned you earlier in your career, you were not a good communicator. How are you not a good communicator? It all starts with 
when I was younger, I would I would have wished that I had learned quickly to see myself clearly, right? Being more amenable to constructive feedback. I, I spend a ton of time talking to my younger team members and, and frankly, even my own kids about why it's so important to listen to feedback. And I think I, when I was younger, I could be a, a bit pig-headed and, and wasn't always open as I should be to feedback. You know, someone I work with now who's who's been a mentor to me uh, is really good at getting this through to her more junior folks. And while I learned years ago to get to get comfortable with this type of thing, I still find myself learning how to how to really embrace feedback as as the gift because that's really what it is. That old saying: if you if, if you talk less and listen more, a lot of good things happen. And I think. I should have been more open to listening a little bit more than I would. Uh, I think I would speak a little bit too prematurely. Wow. Okay. So that's, I think that's a couple of things. So not only listening more completely, but then giving an answer too quickly, which is kind of related, but really two things. So you wouldn't internalize a message. You were already sort of maybe formulating the response before they were sort of complete with, with whatever they were doing. Is that accurate? I remember vividly in a job interview, someone said that to me. The the feedback after the interview was there was a point in time where you were answering a question before they were finished asking it. And I remember that early on and that stuck with me forever. And And I even look for it now when I meet with people because it's just an important thing. What other advice would you give your younger self? You mentioned communication, but I mean, was there anything else that that you messed up on that you wish you would have done differently, an opportunity you didn't take, some character trait that that irritated others that you weren't aware of, anything like that? Nothing in regards to that. But I, you know, I definitely think that early on, I was very quick to, you know, if I was looking at a problem, um, I would be very quick to draw from a past experience and start quickly trying to formulate a plan based on something that I had seen before, right? So you kind of feel like you have that situational awareness where you, where you, you say, okay, I've seen this before. And I can just do this and this is going to fix it. And I think really kind of taking time and, and, and you have to learn how to do this, right? You have to change your behavior, but really taking time to kind of understand the existing environment. You know, not every environment is the same, especially, um, you know, in this line of work. So making sure that I understand that don't spend too many cycles on trying to recreate something that might've worked for in the past and spend that time, you know, starting over and really kind of understanding exactly what you're trying to accomplish and formulate a plan from there. One thing that was, it took some time for me to to develop is if I were in a room and there were multiple parties meeting and some of my staff was in with me, the people with which I worked, there's this tendency, I think, in at least in, in American culture, where the person in charge sort of gets to speak first and most. And I have the tendency to kind of dominate a a meeting, or at least I used to. I'm I'm way more laid back than I used to be. But one of the most difficult leadership techniques was just leaning back when someone would address me and just staying silent and just take a look to the left or to the right. It did two things. One, it, it made sure that my team had a voice besides my own, but it also kept the staff on their toes too. They couldn't loaf anymore because they knew I wasn't going to run the meeting. I bring that up. I've never brought that up on the show before. Any parallels with you? You know, your former technician, you were sort of praised on having right answers. Now you can kind of be praised of letting one of your staff have the right answers. Any any parallels with you on that? Yeah, that's a great example of kind of the evolution of leadership, right? And to kind of enable people that work for you to be able to do stuff. And, you know, some of that too, Steve, can be cultural, right? There are certain cultures where 
it's not appropriate for somebody more junior in the room to speak up or have input into a conversation. So I think that kind of depends on the on the footprint of your environment. But certainly, you know, you know that old saying, you, you learn just as much from a bad boss as you do a good boss. I've had cases where, you know, I was, you know, a fly on the wall and, you know, told to keep my mouth shut. And I've had other bosses who have been great about bringing me out of that shell or bringing any people out of the shell to kind of have some ownership in the meeting. And, and to your point a minute ago about having folks more involved in, in organizing and running the meetings, I mean, that that's a great thing for people to do because it gives them a sense of ownership. It gives them a sense of, you know, I'm part of the team here. I'm part of, uh, you know, I'm being entrusted with, with something as important as, as running a meeting. So we all take our lumps along the way. And these are certainly things that, that I'm no different from, from anyone else in terms of uh, being through that before. Kind of shifting a little bit, you're in an organization for a variety of reasons. We're not going to talk about your current employer or even really past by name, but you've had a couple opportunities that I think would be interesting to explore for the listener. And one is kind of building the CISO position where it didn't exist. Being new, how did you get the start? When there isn't a program and there isn't a focus of the person, there isn't a team, there's not even a strategy. Where did you begin? First of all, it started with just basically spending the time to educate myself. So I spent a lot of time reading CISSP books and just getting an understanding of what security is, right, from a macro level. I also identified pretty quickly that, you know, the way my firm was scaling and in some of the goals that the executive team was putting forth, it made very it made a lot of sense to us that we needed to have somebody really own security. We couldn't really we hit a point where we had explosive growth year over year for you know five years consecutively. And there was no way that I felt that we were going to be able to go on that journey without somebody dedicated to that. So I spent a lot of time networking. I spent a lot of time, you know, reading about risk. I started spending a lot of time about learning about frameworks. And then I kind of Obviously, the regulatory environment, right? That plays a big piece into an understanding what are our obligations that we have to do, right? By the SEC or whomever. And that takes years, right? That's not something that you can do in six months. So, and it takes a personal commitment, right? So you're spending a lot of time away from family trying to, to relearn or, or, or learn this new thing that has a, a huge upside for your firm. When somebody asks you today internally about information security, about something, a news article they read or maybe a client request or you know an update on some project what are the types of questions that you get asked cuz i think you're in an interesting sort of market and the things that are important to your company there's overlap but i think some might be a little bit unique so when someone comes to you at work or maybe now on messenger what are the kinds of questions you get about security what's what are two or three that you receive and why do you think you get those questions so I do a lot of client meetings. When I first started meeting with clients, and you kind of saw the shift. First, folks wanted to talk about disaster recovery. They wanted to talk about you know BCP and things like that. But now it seems like folks just want to talk about the things that kind of keep you up at night. So all the stories that you read, nation states, and, and what I always say to people: the world has changed in such a way where you know the days of you know the person in their basement using their grandmother's machine trying to hack a network are gone, and now you're talking about well-funded nation states as we saw with the elections, politically motivated. So the environment has changed. And so a lot of people want to know, what are we doing to protect ourselves around those different things? Um, I get a ton of questions from users. And, and I love this because I'm in, you know, this gets into a little bit about an awareness strategy. People want to know, they generally want to know if they fail a phishing test or if they, if they score poorly in an assessment, they want to know why. 
I always try to add, sprinkle in some personal information around, these are things you can do to protect your, your, your personal life. These are things that you can do to protect your professional life and kind of blend those together. And I think you get a, a higher level of engagement for folks when you're able to do that. Going back to when you interface, not everyone will understand what you mean when you say this, but you're meeting with prospective clients or, or partner organizations that are evaluating you, your security, your security program, and you're having to give them kind of a sampling of the program. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. Client management's actually a difficult job. That, that's not an easy, because failure is very clear if they're upset, if they don't have trust in you they're probably not going to give you their money. Right. So you mentioned over the last period of, you know, however many years that the questions they asked have changed. Like, so their view, my, my idea is, is that their view of security or what it entails has changed. The ingredients that make good security have, have changed. What are some of the ingredients, st- the stuff they now ask for that they didn't used to ask for? People are very curious about our journey in terms of around information protection, how we built our program. And I have a, a slide in one of the decks that I show, and it really articulates kind of the maturity curve of our program. And it kind of talks, you know, you know I always try to tie it back to, to the old people process technology added. So we're really starting with kind of people, right? And how we formed a, an actual formal committee who is our, you know, our governing body for, for information protection. Then I kind of go into the process and I talk a lot about the frameworks that we, that we look at. I talk about written information security policy and acceptable use policy and those kind of things. And then we get into technology, right? How we actually layered on the technology and the different tools. And, you know, obviously you want to keep that at a very high level. As you get to a point where you have a mature program that's been stood up, you kind of talk to, well, what are you doing to continue to maintain it, right? Continuous improvement, you know, becoming metric driven, KPI driven, you know, at the end of the day, our goal is not only to be a trust advisor to our executive team and our boards, but also to make sure that our clients feel safe. Because your, your, your point you mentioned earlier about, you know, you mess one of those meetings up, that could be the difference between somebody investing a large amount of capital with you. So I take that responsibility incredibly seriously that um, my firm trusts me to do that. And spend a ton of time preparing for those meetings. So it's something that, um, and, and I'm trying very hard to include some of my, my lower level managers into those meetings so they can actually start listening in and hearing those things so they can see the kind of questions that, that get asked in, in those forms. So kind of a trick question, what's the other benefit of having your junior level staff or managers, whomever, in those meetings with you? Hey, look, th- those are those are high pressure environments, right? And you know, especially when you first start doing those, and we're all going to stumble a little bit when you kind of do that. And you know, you want to definitely um, maintain a sense of confidence in, in the folks that that you're managing that they know that you know you can handle that kind of stuff and you can do that thing. So I think that could that could be a little stressful at first, but you know, the folks that you're bringing into those meetings with you or someone that you work with on a, on a on a very consistent basis, they know you pretty well there. And again, it's just sometimes also they want to. What more can I do? Can I actually speak? Can I do those kind of things? And those are things you have to kind of work towards. But that's all sure. part of the mentoring process for sure. I think that is phenomenal. Any kind of exposure, something that takes a fair degree of preparation and something that has a fairly high stakes outcome, you know, both of those are phenomenal opportunities to mentor, not just explain, but they're going to see you do. There's a handful of of uh, things on this earth that can learn through mimicking. Uh, we're we're supposed to be the best at it, 
And if you see how your boss or your coworker manages this, and it's a world that you're normally not invited into, they will learn very quickly not only how to prepare, but also how to deliver a difficult message. The other thing I think that's interesting is I'm sure these meetings, much like an ELT or a board meeting, they make say you have a half an hour and then stuff gets flipped around and you've got six minutes. That's right. Or, or they want to talk about something you didn't prepare for and you have to learn to quickly think on your feet. Right. And then how much of that message do you share on the fly? Or are you strong enough to say, you know, I don't have the particulars in front of me or I've got just the perfect answer uh, in a slide that I'll send after the fact, after the meeting, that'll answer all of what you need. You know, how do you pivot and maintain grace, which is not an easy thing to do. It's an art versus science for sure. I talk a lot about what I'll call crisis management, you know, breach response, sort of failures in leadership. And that I think is, is the biggest failure I see or the theme of it is that there's too many people in information security that haven't had the opportunity to work through a crisis at the right level. So you're making introductions. A problem happens and you're making introductions in a crisis. That's the absolute worst time to have that happen. I love the fact that that's something that you do. And, and I think that should be a, you know, something adopted by more people, kind of have that tag along, kind of that ride along process. And that also requires top-down support, right? And, you know, you talk a little bit about incident response and you know, one of the things we started doing last year was executive cyber tabletop exercises, right? And kind of working through those things in a controlled way. And the goal is to never be at a point where if something happens, nobody knows what to do and there's no playbook and there's, you know, there's no familiarity with, with the folks that need to be in that room. What does success look like as an outcome from performing uh, the executive tabletop? At a high level, I think when you, once you complete it, I think you're going to learn very quickly, you know, in terms of the initiatives that you're trying to roll out post-test are something that's going to have support. And I know that going into these meetings, I mean, this is this is a big ask, right? To ask an executive team to give up, you know, four to six hours of their day, sometimes even go off-site. So to me, success is is first of all getting getting that level of engagement, right? To get the folks in the room. And then it's pretty obvious once you're in that room, are folks, you know, are they on their laptops? Are they on their phone? So I've been pretty lucky um, in that regard that we've got really great support. But I think, again, you know, it all comes down to awareness, right? And the reason why we're doing this is we want to do it in this controlled way so we can fail and learn what not to do. So when it really does happen, and, and, and hopefully it doesn't, that folks actually know what to do. And, and I think, you know, you learn again from, you know, you do your quarterly updates with your boards and, and your executive leadership team. These things, the questions that they ask start to change. So when you're bringing them in and they're now engaged in these type of activities, they're now a part of your program. They essentially become sponsors to your program. What are some of the titles of the people in the room when you do an exec tabletop? We have co-CEOs. So I last time we had one of our CEOs there, we had our CFO there, we had our chief data officer, we had our head of investor relations, my boss, who's the chief technology officer. And that was the first one we ever did. And then the second, one of the, the outputs of that exercise was a report on how we did. And one of the things said, you guys have very, very good people in place to kind of handle something like this. So the next time we did an exercise, we actually went one level down. We started using managers that work for them. So we could kind of build that layer of, of, of redundancy there. And now we're going to be doing our third one this year. And we're going back to that executive level. And we're actually going to be going offsite for that. One of the things that is an issue 
is getting involvement, getting people to show up. Did you send an email? Did the board ask for it? Did you go through and eyeball to eyeball ask people to say, hey, would you come to my event? How did you invite everyone and how did you sort of justify their commitment of time? So I do updates for not only our executive leadership team, but we have numerous boards just based on the structure of our company. I started talking about doing this a year before we actually did it. So during those presentations and you kind of, you know, you talk about the normal things to talk about in a board update, but I also would have a roadmap, right? And things that are coming down the pipeline. So I started those conversations really earlier and it took a lot of work and time. I would have to literally leading up to those events, when I would get time with the individuals that I know I absolutely needed in the room, I would have personal conversations with them to, to gain their support. So when that time came, I did send an email and, and luckily it had been something that, you know, they, we had talked about live multiple times. They had seen it in numerous presentations, sometimes many times. And, and that, that, that worked for us. When you explain it in your roadmap, a tabletop exercise for executives, why are you doing that? It talks really about your awareness strategy, right? Which is going to be an anchor of, of, of most programs, right? So kind of what do we need to have, right? We need to have top-down leadership. And, and, and part of that is making, if I can't get my executives to engage in this, right? And we talk about the risks, we talk about the things that could potentially prevent us from, you know, making our, or meeting our goals. These are the things that are going to get away in it. And this is how we're going to mitigate against those things. And part of that is making sure we have people strongly engaged from a user awareness strategy. So I would always say that we can't have a successful user awareness strategy if I don't have the engagement from you folks. And, and, and luckily, my, I have a very supportive boss who, who, who sees the things very similar to me, and, and she helped me do that. When you went about, say, okay, we, we have buy-in now, we have people that are going to show up that have sort of the appropriate title, you get them all there in a room, and all eyes are probably on you or maybe on the people if you had an outside firm facilitate, which is I generally recommend in most cases, yeah. not all. What are some of the things that that you had them do out of the gate? Like what was one sort of scenario if you can if you can share? We started with what what's in the news at the time. So we had a uh, ransomware. Ransomware was a pretty big thing. You know, obviously it still is. You asked earlier about some of the things people come to you and ask you about. And a lot of people ask, well, what are we doing to protect ourselves against ransomware? So that was certainly top of mind. So that first exercise, we chose to keep it pretty simple. And we focused solely on that. The second time we did it, we went off site for that second time as well. We kind of changed things and we did it in a way where folks would be sitting in a room and all of a sudden phones would start ringing. And we the really the idea behind the second exercise was we had recently suffered a breach and we didn't know what it was. And it was now being reported in the news. And we now needed our marketing people to make a statement. And we had you know, a mock TV up on the screen. This third party did a really good job of, of, of creating this environment for us. But so not only did we kind of have to talk through the things that we'd have to walk through in the various decision points, you now had people who their wheelhouse, things that they're experts in, like the marketing folks and the communication folks actually having to get up and stand in front of a green screen and make a comment to the media. And those are, those are real life examples, right? These are the things that we see on TV. And, and we spent a ton of time talking about what are the right and wrong things to say because you never know. Oh yeah, that's going to go down. So that was one of the most engaging things we ever saw, and it was it was a really really great experience. We're gonna we're gonna do something pretty similar this time around. We actually had we had to reschedule it, you know, due to due to what's going on in the world. But really looking forward to that, and um, you know, hopefully you have a little fun along the way while you're doing it. If you have an ongoing investigation, you know, one of the problems if you have marketing folks or even corporate communications or even outside experts, 
managing your message. The issue is, is that most of them haven't been trained on sort of the particulars of, of cyber, uh, you know, cybersecurity, breach response. And so something that may seem innocuous that, or something that they can just say, hey, this, is, this doesn't seem like a big deal. I can just mention this. You may not want to mention. You may not want to mention for security reasons. You may not want to mention for legal reasons. And so having that, you said earlier, what you can say and cannot say requires a lot of work. Yeah. In my prior life, I spent a fair amount of time coaching others on what they should say and what they should avoid yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, or delivering it myself. But so what were some things, if you can share there, was there any high level advice on okay, we've had a breach and we don't know all the details, but we need to give a message to media. Who's delivering it and what should they say or what should they not say? Can you recall any of that? Yeah. So what the first thing they did is they grabbed my boss, who's the CTO and not a marketing person, but clearly had been coached before and trained on what to do when this happens. And really the idea was breach had been reported or there was there was news of a potential breach at XXX company. And the way she answered the question was she said, we're aware of the reports and we're looking into it. There was no you know, confirmation that there was a breach. There was no details on what the reports were. It was just, hey, we saw the news too, and we're looking into this. And as soon as we have information, we're going to share it. And to a certain extent, you know, you, you're going to have to talk in circles a little bit, kind of reemphasizing that that message. I'm a, I'm a New England guy. So being a, a fan of the Patriots, I think you see, I've seen Tom Brady do that for years when he, when he speaks with the press. So We've gotten pretty good at it around here. So uh, again, that was really the idea behind it. And then anything that she could not answer, she would redirect to the marketing team and would give a contact information on how to reach somebody there. That's an important perspective and a good method to say, I have no further information. Uh, you know, anything else, you know, as, as information becomes available, we'll provide it through approved channels. Yeah. That, I'll tell you, client management, if you have a problem like this, is another huge one. So imagine. There's an asymmetric problem with that. There's only one of you and you have many clients. And if you have a breach, they're all going to be really pissed off. And they're going to want to talk to the CISO yeah. right now, right now. In fact, they're all going to call at the same time. Or even if you have a program around that, there's going to be a bridge line with maybe 100 or 200 of them there. And they're going to have their experts and they're going to want all the inside information during an active investigation. That to me, you know, those scenarios are really what people need to kind of walk through and think about. One of my favorite kind of non-traditional executive tabletops, you may have heard me talk about this. I've mentioned it, I think, uh, on earlier shows is actually writing your breach notification letter before you've had a breach. The tabletop exercise is to formulate the message. And then everything you say in there, you know, obviously you should be able to back up but then to question, why do you say those things, right? So it's always, you've been a victim of an advanced attack because no one's ever a victim of an unadvanced attack. And, you know, you say we've, we've contacted law enforcement. Okay. Well, do we know anyone in law enforcement? Who would you even contact? We've brought in outside experts. Well, that's good. But does that infer then you have no internal experts? Where are you going to host this information? Is it on your own hacked website or is it on a third party site? Right. Yeah. So you sort of walk through kind of the, and then observations from it then sort of build out workflows uh, to, to work on as time goes on. So it sounds like you've, you've had a couple of these and the third one's on the horizon. So Yeah, and the points that you're bringing up, that's all part of you know what's good in a, in a program, for sure. So tell me something that's a little bit specific maybe to private equity. You know, one of the things we spoke about before is just communication 
in that world is a little different. Is there a different method or a different perspective of a good security program in your world versus you know what you see among your peers? I think for the most part, there's a lot of similarities because I mean, if you really if you look at you and I talked about this when we when we spoke earlier, we kind of talked about you know what's different or what's good in, in the programs, right? And you know, for dev and and infrastructure and things like that, there there are all kinds of maturity models and defined methodologies that people can follow and and measure against SDLCs and whatnot. And you know, looking at it from a fundamental level, defects, story points, and other kind of tactical metrics tell those stories. So there's kind of this formalized historical reference that, to a certain extent, is static on what a properly managed, I guess, development or, or program would look like, right? So from security, in my opinion, and we and I know we touched on this earlier, it's it's more of an art versus a science, right? And no two CISOs are going to measure their programs the same or, or show their boards or the executive leadership team the same set of metrics. And, and maybe this is because risk tolerance varies so much or, or you're trying to figure out where you fit in in terms of a, of a framework. And I think while there are standards and metrics that we all look like, like blocks and vulnerabilities, there's, there's also a certain degree of subjectivity to it, right? And depending on your executive or board team's you know, technical acumen, you kind of have to be selective in what you share. So for me, I try to save the standard, you know, threat blocks and vulnerability metrics for a monthly operating review, which I present to my peers and my boss. And I try to tell a story, right, as it relates to risk with my executive leadership team and board reporting and show things that really move the needle in terms of what the program is doing versus those monthly or, or quarterly tactical metrics. If you're a newer CISO and you're just getting acclimated with your leadership team or your program is a new thing for your organization, that can start with, you know, building out a framework and articulating how the goals align to it and, and work your way outward with respect to how those things are funded or lined up with, with the risks you're trying to mitigate. So well, those things have come a long way there. I still think so many different iterations of, of what you can line it up against. You covered a lot there. I mean, do you think that being a newer CISO, is it difficult because there isn't an agreed upon definition of good? Yep. How do we know if we're a good CISO or a mediocre one? It's an unfair question, but I mean, how, how do you internalize that? I think what's different about being a CISO is unlike traditional roles in firms, world events, right, can kind of change what we report against as security practitioners, right? So something I've been thinking about recently, you know, due to the current state of the world and, and how we are all working right now are, are existing tools maintaining efficacy, right? What was effective when our workforce was was mostly in the office? Do so they continue to remain effective in, in a remote scenario? So these are things that I think leadership will find interesting in explaining that stories. And, you know, maybe that now shifts our strategy. So something that isn't necessarily on your radar, you know, even two months ago is going to directly change what you report on an ongoing basis. So I think being able to kind of adapt as those things happen and change on the fly. And I think that's, to me, that's a huge part of it. No question. I think adaptability is, is absolutely necessary, not only from what is it you're trying to protect? How does that protective team operate? How does it provide services? You know, how do you deal with a changing adversary, both based on their techniques, but also on the facing environments that you have or, or non-facing even? I can't think, and, and maybe someone will have something for me, I can't think of an executive position that has that requires the background, that has the risk and has sort of the bad day factor of a CISO. I, I really can't think of it. Until you start getting into people that are dealing with loss of life, I, I think that is where the line then goes in their favor, so to speak. 
but I can't th- I can't think of a, a more stressed position. No, I really can. And again, like you said, I think other than people that are, you know, dealing with putting people's lives in their hands, it's a tough role, right? And, and you read all these statistics about the average lifespan of a CISO, <laughs> that certainly doesn't make it any better. But I think, you know, what, what kind of keeps me going is really the trust that, you know, everyone knows that, right? Your whole team knows that you're kind of, you're going to be responsible for how clients perceive you and the things that you're doing and, and how you're kind of staying ahead of those things. So I feel like the reward is there. And I, and I feel like, you know, at least I, I get that feeling in my organization that we're very well respected in terms of what we're trying to accomplish as a team. And I think that, you know, we have that support that we need, but yeah, you're right. It's a tough thing to, to do. If you're doing your job, you should be a creator and communicator of trust and knowing that that can always change, that difficult situations may make that job of creating and communicating more difficult. But it's something that sort of many of us enjoy the fact that the job is kind of impossible. That's a dramatic statement, but it is very difficult. Uh, You're sort of this, I often say, you know, defending the Alamo. Uh, You you know that it's going to be very difficult and you're trying to defend something that's not easy to defend. No. And, and you know what? You can spend you know millions of dollars on tools and, and software to try to ensure that your organization is protected. And, and that's certainly important to a degree. But what's more important is folks having and practicing good cyber hygiene, right? The reality is no tool is going to protect you if someone falls victim to you know social engineering or, or gives info sure. away. Or if you're a company who wires money and you don't do things like incorporate callback verification and such, it's a huge risk for loss and even monetary loss. So I think User awareness is a big part of that, and that, that has to be a foundational capability of any program. One thing that I've, I don't know that I've ever covered, um, I don't know if I had the opportunity to, how did you discover the show? Yeah, I'm always looking for a good, good podcast, and I've been, tr- I've been trying really hard to, uh, to stay active during this time, and I, I came across it and um, listened to the first few episodes and thought you guys were doing a great job. I appreciate that. I wasn't fishing for accolades, but what I was going to mention is that you are the first guest that uh, sort of found us and sort of reached out and we started having a chat. And so this is sort of an organic guest. So I didn't know you before any of this. So the show actually sort of introduced us. So I thought I'd I'd call that out, I guess, for two reasons. One, to say thank you. And, and uh, two, to just anyone else who finds this useful or has and or has ideas on things they'd like to talk about, I encourage you to reach out. Dave, I appreciate the time you've made, and I'm flattered that uh, you'd spend some time with us in addition to listening to the show. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. So we got kind of one more thing. We close on this. It's really an opportunity to kind of encapsulate or or introduce a new topic. Pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, Dave, what does that mean to you? I have a two-part answer, and I I think we covered it a little bit, but, you know, my perspective is, is a little different, right? Because you know, I'm the first CISO that my firm's ever had, right? So, so I first had to learn what that means to be a good CISO, right? And that requires a, a pretty big time commitment, but more so than any other type of role, networking is really important to this. And I know we, we touched on this earlier when we spoke on the phone, and I don't mean networking in, in the context of, you know, finding your, your next job opportunity, but similar to what I said earlier about the, the subjective nature and, and what we report, every CISO is going to run their program differently, right? So investing the time to meet with people, similar business challenges, you kind of take the best bits of that research and you, you incorporate it in your program. So that has been immensely helpful for me. And I would say the second part is I also had to show and educate folks at my firm on, on what the value of having somebody living and breathing this is on a daily basis for us and not just be a checkbox. So you know, defining what that value proposition is and, and, and how does it help our clients and, and our firm grow. And this also requires a ton of time learning the, 
corporate vernacular and, and the business and how it's run. So for me, that was really the two things that I needed to be cognizant of. And, and there's good alignment between the two of them so that I can be the best that I can be for my firm and also that they're getting the most out of what a CISO is. Excellent perspective. Excellent answer. I really appreciate uh, you sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Steve. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.